Okay, we are continuing part two of last week's message. His church, His way. Um, I'm sorry that we're missing a lot of folks today. This may be one of the most important messages I bring to the church this year. And I want to encourage people who aren't here to get the notes and the recordings. I'm recording this again today uh, because I believe these are very important things that are going to affect our church in coming weeks and months. And some of the things I'm going to be sharing today uh, might sound a little bit boring because it deals more with church structure and how we see the church in the book of Acts beginning to take shape and form. Nevertheless, it's extremely important that we all have an understanding of where the Holy Spirit wants to take us as a church. Let me recap from last week. Jesus only mentioned the word church twice that we know of in all four Gospels. And only one of them really gives us any sense at all of what he was talking about. He never sat down on the hillside and taught his disciples, here's what a church looks like, here's what you do in church, here's how you guys are going to go out and start churches. None of that. For three and a half years, he spoke in parables, he preached the kingdom of God, and then when he's about to leave, he says, oh, by the way, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What amazes me there, he had just finished his encounter with Peter. Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, well done Peter, good job. You didn't learn that in school. No man taught you that. That was revealed to you by my Father. And on this rock, I will build my church. I personally believe that means the revelation of Christ will be the foundation of the church. Nothing else, nothing less. And two things we pointed out last week. He will build it and it's not yours and it's not mine and it's not Pastor Joe's or Pastor Harry's. It's His church. One church. His church. And we're so busy trying to get everybody on board with our church and our mission and our thing What we need to be doing is making sure, first of all, we belong to His church and then get everybody else to join His church. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. And a lot of the fights and divisions and splits that churches go through, sadly, is all because of this, it's mine. That's mine. No, it isn't. We went through this last week. He paid the price. He bought it with His blood. That's why it's His. You and I have no rights to the church. Jesus told Peter, go and feed my sheep. They're not yours, Peter's. They're my sheep. Go feed my sheep. And so it's His church, His way. We saw numerous warnings that God gave to Moses in the Old Testament about building the tabernacle. Make sure you build it exactly according to the pattern that I showed you in the mountain. God is a God of detail. He's an architect. He has plans, blueprints. He knows what He's doing. And the church, He's going to raise up in these last days. He'll do it with you or without you. He'll do it with me or without me, but He's going to do it. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against His church. I want to be in that church. I want to belong to that church. I want to make sure I understand that church, and I want to make sure whatever God's called me to do, I want to do it His way, not my way. We emphasized a lot last week that after three and a half years with His apostles, Jesus appeared to them 40 more days after He was risen from the dead, convincing them that He was alive. He wanted these guys absolutely convinced about the resurrection because soon they were going to go go into all the world preaching as His witnesses of the resurrection. 
Now, if they had any doubts whatsoever, he was going to clear them up now. We, we, you know, we give poor Thomas, doubting Thomas, a, a rough time, but we're all doubting Thomases. And God meets us right where we are to convince us that he is who he says he is. And Thomas got delivered from his doubts. He became a believing Thomas. He became a mighty apostle. And it is believed that he did a lot of his work in India. A lot of the places I visited in India are, uh, to this day, uh, sort of remnants of his early work there. There's even places called, uh, named after him, Mount St. Thomas and stuff like that. So, um, my point is, Jesus spent all that extra time just to make sure they were convinced about his resurrection, and he kept teaching them for 40 more days about the kingdom of God. Still, I want you to notice this, no mention about church. You can scour Acts chapter 1, there's no mention of the church there. Why didn't he sit them down for 40 days and say, alright now, we're about to start a church, here's what a church looks like, you need elders and deacons and apostles and pastors. No, no mention of any of that. All he did say was, you're not ready yet. You're not prepared for the task before you. Sit down, literally is what the scriptures say. Wait right here in Jerusalem. Tarry, sit down until. Until. And I'm stressing this again because I want to make sure everybody here understands. I'm not against speaking in tongues. And we're going to talk about speaking in tongues later on. But he didn't say, sit down until you speak in tongues. He didn't say, sit down until somebody tells you theologically, oh, you received the Holy Spirit as soon as you got born again. No. He said, sit down until you are full of power. There's a big difference. Sit down until you are endued with power. Let me tell you something. The power he's talking about, you'll know when it comes on you. <laughs> no one will have to tell you. No one will be able to talk you out of it. Because you know what you know what you know. Power has come into you and it's transformed your life. He said, wait until you get that power. Because you're going to need it. That's the only way this thing called the church will ever come into being. So... They did what he said. And by the way, it wasn't a suggestion. Acts chapter 1 says he commanded them, wait, sit down until power comes on you. And then he repeats it in Acts 1.8, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you'll receive tongues? No, still no mention of tongues. No mention at all about speaking in tongues. In all four Gospels or in Acts chapter 1? He does say again, though, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to receive power. Dunamis, dynamite, dynamic power to be my witnesses. You see, there's a reason for this power coming. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then we're going to the end of the earth, testifying that Jesus is the Christ, He is Lord, and He's soon coming King. You're going to need power to do that. So, we come to Acts 2. The day of Pentecost, they've been waiting for ten days in the upper room. I don't know exactly what they were waiting for, except for what Jesus told them. Wait for power. Wait for power. Well, they got it on the day of Pentecost. And before we go into that, I want to remind you again that based on my studies of the book of Acts I can make a definitive statement now. No power no church. Amen. Ouch. Amen. No power, no church. We can play church we can play church but we won't be one without power. No Holy Spirit, no church. Because the only time we finally see the word church again is in Acts 2, verse 47, after...
after the day of Pentecost when they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and power came on them and they spoke in other tongues. Churches never mentioned before that. And the book of Acts is about what Jesus began to do and teach when He was here on earth. He's not done yet. Now the Holy Spirit is going to take the baton. You know, in a relay race, one runner hands off the baton to the next runner. Jesus said, I'm going. I'm going back to the Father. Oh, but I'm going to send one. He's going to teach you everything. He's going to be your counselor. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He's the one that's going to empower you. And I believe we'll see clearly that the central figure from the book of Acts on is the Holy Spirit. Now that the Holy Spirit had come and filled these men and women, by the way, Mary was there in the upper room. Tell this to your Catholic friends. Mary became a Pentecostal. A tongue-speaking Pentecostal. That's right. She was there. They weren't praying to Mary. They weren't going, oh, hail Mary, hail Mary. Mary was there crying out to her Heavenly Father, waiting for His promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And she got filled with the same power Peter, James, and John, and all the others in the upper room were filled with. That's what they were waiting for. Power. And... You know, in 1 Corinthians 2, I want to read a little bit more than we read here last week. I think we picked it up in verse 9, but I actually want to start at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1. You've heard the verses before. Paul said, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. You see, from day one, God wanted to make sure the foundation of this thing called the church was right. It's built and established on the power of God, not on anything that has to do with men or their wisdom or cleverness or anything else. Wait, wait, wait until you're endued with power. And then we saw further down here in 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle says in verse 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Some people, maybe not listening today, but perhaps on the recording, some people are not going to have a clue what I'm talking about because of the next verse. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's why I said, no Holy Spirit, no church. No power, no church. That's why I'm urging everyone within the sound of my voice, if you're not absolutely sure that God has filled you with the Holy Spirit and experienced what Jesus talked about, rivers of living water coming out of your innermost being, then my advice is get thirsty, cry out to God, seek Him with all your heart, and understand it is a gift and it is a promise. Nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it, all you have to do is receive the free gift of power. My goodness, why aren't more people thirsty for that? Jesus stood up and in a loud voice on the last day of the feast, He cried out, if you're still thirsty, come to Me. Because He that believes in Me, as the Scriptures have said, out of His belly, I like that, will flow rivers of living water. My goodness, if you had a river inside your stomach, I think you'd know about it. Some people still don't seem to understand the Holy Spirit and what God wants them to have. Power! These men 
as you read further and further in the book of Acts, what boldness they now had. Even Peter, what a coward, what a wimp he was on the night that Jesus went to the cross. Oh, you're one of his disciples. No, I'm not. Oh, you were with him. No, I wasn't. Third time, he's calling down curses. I don't know the man. Denied him three times after three and a half years. He didn't have any power yet. Oh, but on the day of Pentecost, guess who stood up first? Peter. Bold as a lion. He says, let me tell you what's going on here. This is what the prophet Joel spoke about. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And on and on he goes. Like a different man. Well, guess what? When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you are a different man. You are a different woman. You are completely transformed. That's the whole point. If we don't allow that transformation in our lives, we're kidding ourselves. We're not going to be a church. We're not going to be able to complete the mission that He's put before us. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. Go preach the gospel to every creature. He's looking for a powerful church. A power-filled church. Let me quickly review something else we ended with last time. Then i got a lot of new stuff I want to look at. As I've been revisiting the book of Acts this past summer, and just spending hours and hours and hours studying, praying, fasting, seeking God, crying out to God. How many of you understand, this might sound like it's self-contradictory, -contra can you understand that it's possible to be excited and also burdened? <laughs> I am extremely excited about what God's doing in His church, but I'm also very burdened. I'm very concerned about a lot of things that I see that aren't right, that need to be put right. People are missing what God is doing. People are dull of hearing. They're blind. They're missing what God is doing in these last days. It's very exciting. But it's also very concerning if you understand what God is doing and then you see the lackadaisical, lack of thirst, lack of interest in many. It, 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 it bothers me. It concerns me. And all I can do is pray about it. And I've been doing that all summer long. And I made a list here based on just looking through the book of Acts. What does a real church look like? Remember, Jesus never told his disciples what a church looks like. He didn't give them an outline. These are the seven marks of a true church. But by the end of Acts 2, we're already getting a pretty good image of a newborn but an alive church. It continues to grow in Acts 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. And as it grows, we begin to learn more. But here's the list I gave you last week. Marks of a true church. Number one, they had anointed preaching. And the headline, the lead story, was Jesus Christ. Christ crucified, resurrected, exalted, soon coming. That was their message. Over and over and over. You killed Jesus, God raised Him from the dead, and He's coming back soon. That was it. It wasn't complicated. But they did it with an anointing. And that's why, point number two, whenever sinners and unbelievers heard their message, they were either cut to the heart, or they fought back with persecution and opposition. But they weren't just numb and you know, apathetic about the message. There was some reaction to what was being said. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, when He comes, He will convict of sin. Oh, sinners get very uncomfortable around the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And they got very uncomfortable on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached. It says they were cut to the heart. Who was cutting them? The Holy Spirit was cutting them. We need that. We need to pray for that. When unbelievers, when sinners come into a meeting like this, there should be conviction in their hearts. They should start squirming a little bit. They should get uncomfortable for the hidden sins, the pornography, the stuff they're into at home. They should get uncomfortable 
when they're in the presence of a holy God. Thirdly, already by the end of Acts 2 we see this, 3,000 new souls were added to the 120 that were in that upper room. New converts were being regularly saved, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and added to the church. They didn't just get saved, take baptism, and then run away. They were being incorporated into this thing called the church. I don't, for the life of me, I don't know how they baptized 3,000 people in one day, but they did. Point four, there was unity and harmony amongst all the believers. They were in regular fellowship, eating and worshiping together. Everyone in the community shared everything in common. There was genuine love, charity, and care expressed one for another. Fifth, the believers were in steadfast and continual prayer. Prayer was a major factor in this early church. That's how it started. Praying in an upper room. Seeking God. Waiting for the power of God. And you can trace it right through the whole book of Acts. Prayer, prayer, prayer. When they got thrown into jail and they came out, what did they do? They got the church together and they prayed. What did they pray? Oh Lord, let us stop working miracles because that's what got us into trouble. And let us never go to prison again. It was a miracle that put them in prison and here they come out of prison and what are they praying for? Oh God, give us more boldness and stretch out your hand so that with signs and wonders and miracles... What? Peter, why are you praying that, man? That got you in trouble. Stop praying for miracles. Let's calm it down at least for six months. No. When the power of God is on you, you're not even thinking like that. We want more miracles. We want more power. If we've got to go back to jail again, so be it. Prayer. They prayed. They prayed. They prayed about everything. Number six. There was a devotion. It uses that word. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to what these men of God had to say. The revelation God was beginning to give them now through the Holy Spirit about the church, about the structure of the church, about how the believers were to function together in this thing called the body of Christ, devoted to teaching. Number seven, all through the book of Acts you see this, the fullness of the Holy Spirit was evident Time and again it talks about miracles, signs, and wonders taking place. That's why I say, no power, no Holy Spirit, no church. Paul says the church must be lacking in no bit, waiting for the coming of the Lord. We should have all the gifts manifesting when we come together. If you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, God has already given at least one manifestation of the Spirit in your life. I challenged you last week. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, where's your gift? Why aren't you using it in the church? Or are you not even sure what you've got? Well, time to seek the Lord. Time to cry out to God. Because every member of the body of Christ, read 1 Corinthians 12 on your own, Every member has been given the same Holy Spirit and to everyone, what's every mean? To everyone, a manifestation of the Spirit. And I'm not going to teach on the gifts of the Spirit today. You can read about them for yourself. But at least one of them should be manifesting in your life regularly. Number eight, and this one I'm going to go a little further into depth today. The Holy Spirit was in charge of this church. What a mess man has made of the church by men trying to exalt themselves and be in charge when they weren't supposed to be in charge. The Holy Spirit is in charge of this church. And as long as he's in charge, he will direct, he will guide, he will bring all the pieces together the way he wants to do it. You know... Moses was the only one in the Old Testament that really had the whole plan and pattern for the tabernacle. He was the only one. 
and all the craftsmen and artisans and people who had to actually do the work, Moses had to explain to them, no, 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 it's not like that. A little bit longer, a little bit shorter, a little bit higher. No, 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 we got to get the measurements right. Weigh out the gold. It's got to be exactly one talent of gold, no more, no less. And he had to keep teaching them how to build that tabernacle. I am convinced our Moses now is the Holy Spirit. He's the only one that's got the whole pattern. If we're not listening to the Holy Spirit and we're just doing our own measurements and saying, hey, I think this would be cool. Let's try this. Let's do that. What a mess we make. We need to find out from Moses, Moses, what does it look like? What's the plan? What's the pattern? The Holy Spirit is in charge of this church. Now, I also read you another list. How is the modern church unlike that Acts model of the church? Well, Pastor Tom says, if it hurts, scream out. <laughs> Number one, our modern day churches, big emphasis on buildings and building programs. As soon as you get five or ten or twenty believers, we gotta start a building program. Because that's what everybody does. We gotta buy a piece of land, we gotta go into debt, we gotta strap ourselves with, you know, eighteen, twenty thousand dollar a month mortgage, because that's what everybody else does. Show me in the book of Acts where they bought one building, where they built one temple. You know what they were doing in the book of Acts? They weren't buying real estate, they were selling it. They were selling all their houses and all their lands and coming and laying the money at the feet of the apostles. They didn't care where they met. They met under a tree, by a river. Sometimes they'd be in a school, sometimes in a temple. They just bounced around from place to place. How the devil has tricked and deceived many great men and women of God who have lost their faith, lost their vision because they get submerged in these big building projects. I know, I've seen it. Up close and personal, I know what it does to people. All They, they lay in bed at night. Where are we going to get the mortgage? I'm so glad when I lay down in the bed tonight, I'm just thinking, Lord Jesus, save more souls. Pour out your spirit. Give us more revelation about the church. Let somebody else worry about buildings and funds and mortgages and all that stuff. They were not concerned about that in the book of Acts. But the modern church is. In the modern church, now correct me if I'm wrong and say ouch if it hurts, the typical modern church is separate, autonomous, that means they are their own boss, and it's run by one pastor. And he's like the dictator. Whatever he says goes, and that's it. And what ends up happening, and again, I, I'm not making this stuff up. I know too many of these horror stories because people uh, come and tell us these things. The pastor ends up being a dictator, lording it over the flock, controlling the people, and even doing it in an abusive way. Is that what we see in the book of Acts? Now, we all should yell out on this next one. There is no place in the book of Acts where you can show me even one instance where there was a church with one pastor over the church. Ouch! <laughs> what I will show you over and over and over through the book of Acts and on through the epistles of the New Testament is a group of elders, plural, elders who were caring for that church. Not bossing it around. My God, I've seen the way some pastors treat the people in their congregations. Who do they think they are? They're not your slaves. Hey, look at that! Hey, look at that! Excuse me? Bible says don't lord it over the flock. Be an example to them. The modern church, there's much more reliance now on money, business models. 
invite famous celebrities. That'll help build the church. Do they do that in the book of Acts? Never. Clever schemes. I get all these things mailed to me and emailed to me. Oh, you got to buy this latest church growth model. It'll double your numbers in six weeks. Did they use any of those in the book of Acts? No, I'll tell you what they did in the book of Acts. They fasted and prayed. They prayed and they fasted. They sought God because they knew without the power of the Holy Spirit, we have no church. The conclusion I've come to, we need to change some things. Some things need to change. And people don't like change. Raise your hand if you like change. Oh, Gary likes change. Well, first of all, Gary, you've got to move up. You've got to change your seat. We'll put that one to the test. Good boy, good boy. There we go. You know, they've done studies on this. Even people who are in a miserable job, living in a miserable neighborhood, they don't like change. They'd rather stay in that miserable job, stay in that miserable neighborhood, even when they have a chance to move to something better. Because there's something in human nature, we just don't like any change. But listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. And just before this, Jesus had been talking about fasting. They criticized him. How come your disciples don't fast? John's disciples fast. Jesus said, don't worry, they will one day. When I'm gone, they're going to fast a lot. And then he leads right into this. Mark 2, 21. Good. No one. What's no one mean? No one. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. What in the world is he talking about? I'll tell you what I think he's talking about. You can't mix the old and the new. God is a new God. Do you understand that? Do you know that He's never going to get old? He's never going to run out of new ideas. Even in Revelation 21, after everything that has gone down, He says, Behold, I make all things new. Man, that impresses me. He hasn't run out of new stuff yet. But when God's trying to do something new, I'm not talking about changing a, a truth. I'm not talking about some new wild doctrine or some new wild revelation. God never changes His truth. That remains unchanged. But when God wants to pour some new wine into our lives, there can be a problem. Because you see, the old cloth... Notice what he says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. What, what has happened to the old one? It's already shrunk. Have we started to shrink in our faith? Are we getting old spiritually? We're starting to shrink back from really stepping out in faith, taking risks for the Lord, daring even to fail, trying to do something new for the Lord? Are we all, you know, in a little box now? I'm afraid. I'm afraid of failure, so I'm just going to sit here and not do anything until Jesus comes. You know, anybody who's ever done anything in this world took risks and they failed. <laughs> so we might as well just embrace that and expect some failures, some stumblings along the way. But I'd rather do that than just sit around and twiddle my thumbs and criticize what everybody else is doing. So the old cloth has already shrunk. So if you put a new piece of cloth on the old one, it's going to tear it. It's going to stress it and actually rip it. And then the old wineskin, when you put new wine into a new wineskin, we're not, we're not talking about clay 
bottles or glass jars. These were made out of animal skins. And when the skin is new, it's flexible, it's supple, it can stretch, it can bend. And the wine would continue to ferment more because it's just new wine. And as it ferments, it expands. And the new skin would stretch and move with that new wine. But once it's done, it gets stiff. And if you try to put new wine into that old wine skin, Jesus said it's going to burst. You're going to ruin the skin. And all the wine's going to spill out on the floor. So he ends this whole thing by saying, no, he won't do that. He'll only pour new wine into new wine skins. God has some new wine, I believe. I believe God has new wine. But he will not pour it into an old, stiff wine skin. You know, we have a saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, we don't want any old dogs. We want to all become little puppies again. So we can learn new tricks. So the Holy Spirit can move in our lives. And we don't get all stiff and brittle and say, wait a minute, that's not the way we've done it for the last 55 years. Well, I don't really care how we've done it for the last 55 years. What is the Holy Spirit saying now? What is the Holy Spirit speaking to us now? And, you know, inevitably, when God tries to move in a fresh and a new way, there's going to be some resistance. When we were down in Puerto Rico... I bragged a little bit about the beach house they put us up in. We didn't go there to stay on a beach. We went there to serve the Lord. But God in His goodness, He gave us that. And every morning we would walk up and down our private one-mile beach. And God was reminding me of a book that came out over 40 years ago. And there's a very profound principle here in the book. And the title of the book was, A New Wave Rolls In. And as I was watching the waves coming in, I was reminded of that book. Because each time a new wave comes in, it's fighting against the old wave that's going back out. There's always a conflict. There's a clash between the old wave that is receding and the new one that is coming in. And the Holy Spirit warned me. He said, get ready. There's going to be some resistance against the things I want to do in these last days. There's always that old trying to rise up and say, No, 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 no. You know, we've always sung three hymns, not four. What nonsense. I've heard of church splits. I'm not making this up. Churches have split over an argument about the color of the heart. What nonsense. What nonsense. God have mercy on us. But there will be those that, oh no, we've never done it that way, or oh, I, I know it all, there can't be anything new you're going to teach me. And again, we're not talking about changing the truth of God's Word. But there's a new wine. Wine speaks about the Holy Spirit. God is doing something new. God is moving. I can't even begin to tell you all the things we witnessed down in Puerto Rico and things that God is putting together from different parts of the world. It's mind-boggling. It's the, it's the moving of God. It's not something man is trying to organize. We need to seek God. We need to study the Scriptures. We need to fast and pray. We need to ask Him to show us His ways so that He can build His church. His church, His way. Now... Quickly, go with me to Acts 6. As I mentioned earlier, this church that we want to be a part of, the Holy Spirit is the one in charge. And you can see that in a beautiful way as you read through the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 6, they were already experiencing what I would call growing pains. And, you know, I, I used to think that was just a funny saying until one summer... My brother grew six inches over the summer vacation. <laughs> six inches in one summer. And he would literally lay in his bed at night groaning from the pains. I mean, think about that. Your leg bones got six inches longer over the summer. There's got to be some stuff moving around in there. And it hurt him. It was actually painful. 
So there are going to be growing pains as we grow in the Lord. And certainly the Acts church, as it grew, they started to have some problems. And in Acts 6, there was a problem with the food that was being di- distributed to the widows. And as always, you know, even when people have been saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit, there's still the flesh. And the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews, they started to go at it. And whereas up until now, all we heard about was, you know, unity and everybody sharing together and everybody loving one another, now we've got some discontent, some rumbling in the church. And so they bring this to the apostles to try to figure out what to do. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, it says, The twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, and I'm not going to read all the list. Verse 6, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them, so the word of God spread. Even to select seven men to be table waiters. That's all they were supposed to do. Deliver food to the widows. We're not talking about even being a Sunday school teacher, running the projector or playing music or anything. Just to deliver food, look at the qualifications you needed in this early church. Verse 3 again. Choose seven men who are known to be full of the Spirit. I like that. Known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Something else you notice here, these apostles, they knew very clearly what their calling was. They had to give themselves to prayer and to the Word of God. It's not that they didn't care about the widows, they understood their calling. And every one of us needs to understand, what is our calling in the body of Christ? And stay in that little boundary that God has drawn around you and do what He called you to do. Nothing more, nothing less. And so, the Holy Spirit was already in the forefront of their minds. We don't even want guys waiting on tables unless they're full of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, in the tabernacle of Moses, every part of that tabernacle had to be anointed with oil. They sprinkled the curtains. They sprinkled the poles. They sprinkled the altars. They sprinkled every piece of furniture. Everything in that tabernacle had to be anointed with oil. And most importantly, Aaron and his sons, they were already designated for the priesthood by birth. If you were a son of Aaron, you were already a priest. That didn't qualify you for the priesthood, though. Exodus 40, verse 15 says, Now anoint them, and it's their anointing that will qualify them for their priesthood. Again, no Holy Spirit, no church. Let me go a step further. No anointing of the Holy Spirit, no ministry. The only valid ministry in the church now is by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. No wonder Jesus said, Sit down and wait until you are endued with power. We can't do it in our own strength, in our own cleverness. Let me look at one more passage in Acts. And we'll start with verse 1. Acts 13, verses 1 to 4. And as we read this, I want you to tell me, who's in charge of this church? This is the church in Antioch. Acts 13... Verses 1-4. to In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
Any indication yet who's in charge? I can't see. Verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Now, this was a pretty good church. They had prophets. They had teachers. Who's in charge? Who's the senior pastor here? The Holy Spirit was in charge of this church. What did the Holy Spirit say? Um, Barnabas, come here. Saul, you come here. I got work for you two guys. Set them apart for the work to which I have called them. And the two of them were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Acts 15, they had a big argument in the church. Some Jewish believers were going around saying, you've got to keep the whole law of Moses, even if you're a Gentile. You've got to follow all the sacrifices and all the stuff that we Jews do. Otherwise, you can't be saved. And there was a big argument. And they called this council in Jerusalem. All the apostles, all the elders gathered together in Jerusalem to try to decide how to resolve this problem. And one by one, different ones stood up and spoke. And in the end, the resolution for the problem boiled down to this. Listen to these words. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What an amazing statement. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now, maybe you're not seeing what I'm seeing here. Let me help you. How do these guys know what seems good to the Holy Spirit? Ah, they must know Him. They must know what He likes and what He doesn't like. They must have a relationship with the Holy Spirit because they've been walking with Him and they know what it is to grieve the Holy Spirit and they know what it is to obey the Holy Spirit. And the way the church was being led and guided here, I want you to notice this, it wasn't, it seemed good to us senior pastors, <clears throat> therefore, like it or not, here's our royal decree. There's a lot implied in this one statement. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They must have prayed a lot. They must have already been listening to the Holy Spirit a lot. And, you know, when you're all in tune with the same Holy Spirit, you're all in tune with each other. It's a very easy concept to demonstrate with musical instruments. If each instrument is tuned to one standard note, then the whole orchestra is in tune. If everybody's trying to tune their own uh, way, and, oh, I'm going to tune to B-flat, you tune to A, and I'll tune to C, we're going to have a big mess when we all get together. And that's what happens in most churches, because everybody's doing it their way, not listening for what the Holy Spirit is saying. This amazes me. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That's the church I dream about. A church where the Holy Spirit is in charge and the people are sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You see, if you've got some uh, dictator who wants to be in charge, that's going to be very hard to do. Because that's going to be in conflict with the Holy Spirit. Look in Acts 20. In Acts 20, Paul calls all of the elders, notice again it's plural, all of the elders from the Ephesian church. And he's actually bidding them farewell. He's giving them his farewell address. He's not going to see them ever again. And in verse 28, he gives them these words. Acts 20, 28. Keep watch 
over yourselves, notice the order, we in ministry often get this backwards, we want to watch over everybody else's business and then worry about our own spiritual life last, should be the other way around, keep watch over yourselves, watch your prayer life, watch your time in the word, watch your personal life, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the of which the senior pastor, the president of the corporation, the CEO of the ministry appointed you? No. Of which, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We don't make ourselves anything. The Holy Spirit makes us what we're supposed to be. Holy Spirit places us where we belong in the body, and therefore be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, for another time, I'm going to save uh, the last portion of my message, because it, it's rather tedious and it's rather complex, but let me give you the, the broad brush. As this church grew, it became more and more clear that there were different levels or layers of ministry, of care, and yes, even authority in the early church. We're not talking about, oh, I'm over you, and he's over her, so I'm over everybody. It wasn't about who was over anything. It was God establishing order in his body, just like our human body has order to it. But very quickly, let me just run through this. The church that the Holy Spirit was raising up in the book of Acts, uh, emphasis all the way through the book of Acts on the apostles, the apostolic life, and the apostolic ministry. That's why many Bibles call it the Acts of the Apostles. Starts and ends with emphasis on the apostles. Their ministry was what I would like to call extra-local, meaning it wasn't just in one local church. It was back here somewhere ministering to a number of churches. They weren't pastors of one single church. They were messengers. They moved around uh, as they were sent by the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, we see how God separated Aaron, Moses, and one tribe, the Levites, for the purposes of different kinds of ministry. One thing they all had in common, you'll learn about it in the Old Testament, they had no inheritance, like all the other Israelites. They had nothing. They had no inheritance in this world. God was their inheritance, and they were to be camped right around the tabernacle because they were to devote their life to the ministry. And because of their devotion to the ministry, God charged the other tribes in Israel to bring their tithes, to bring their gifts to the tabernacle, to the priests, and they would live off of the tithes and the offerings of the people. But the point I want to make here God had a separated group of people in the Old Testament who essentially had left everything in this world to devote themselves to the ministry of God. Amazingly, we find the same thing in the New Testament. When Jesus was here on earth, what's the first thing he started to do? Peter, follow me. James, follow me. Matthew, follow me. And the Bible says they left Everything. They left their nets. They left their homes. They sold everything they had. And they walked by faith following Jesus for those three and a half years. They had no inheritance. They had nothing. Peter was able to look Jesus in the eye one day and say, Lord, we have left all. Not too many people could say that. Peter could. And Jesus answered him right back. Good job, Peter. You're going to get a hundred houses in this life. And you're going to get some persecutions too. The apostles, 
This emphasis throughout the book of Acts on these apostles is very important. And I've talked about this in our Wednesday night studies uh, in the book of Acts. They were separated, we just read in Acts 6, for prayer and the ministry of the Word. And as they worshipped and fasted and prayed and waited on the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would send them out. Peter and John were sent from Jerusalem down to Samaria when they heard that uh, Philip was there preaching. We just read about Saul and Barnabas being sent out from Antioch uh, on one of their apostolic missions. I don't have time today to go into all of this, but there were different layers of ministry in the church. So you had the apostolic ministry, but then each local church was cared for, again, not by one pastor, but by a body of elders and deacons. And there were all kinds of qualifications listed later on beyond what we just read in Acts 6 to become a deacon or an elder in the, in the church. First uh, Timothy 3, Titus 1 go into a whole lot of things that had to be in these men's lives before they could be ordained by the apostles as an elder or a deacon. Now, I don't have time today to go into all of this, but let me, let me try to clear up something that I find a great deal of confusion in the body of Christ. And it's on Christian TV, it's in books, it's on the radio, everywhere. And really, if you, if you go back to the Word of God, it's really not that confusing. You've probably heard all of these terms that I'm going to read. Elder, bishop, overseer, pastor, shepherd. Right? You're familiar with those terms? And different ministries have tried to make them mean different things. Oh, well, you know, Quasi's just a pastor, but I'm an overseer. Here comes the overseer. And then, if you really, really are something, you have bishop in front of your name. Now, scream out, but here it comes. I can prove to you from the Word of God that every single title in that list I just read is synonymous. They're all the exact same thing. Oh, I'm Bishop Platt! Big deal. Your pastor. Oh, I'm, I'm an overseer now. I, people like that word over, you know. Over. I'm over you. A dear senior man of God who's been a friend of mine for many, many years, he was in Africa not too long ago, um, and he had gone there to minister to a number of churches. And the pastors were all anxious for him to come. And as soon as he got there, they were like asking him all these questions. And they said, Pastor, how many churches are you over? None. Hmm. Last apostle who came here was over 155. Well, how many pastors are you over? None. Oh. The last apostles that were here, they were over hundreds of pastors. Well, what are you over? Nothing. They were like, oh boy. Did we make a mistake bringing this guy here to Africa? He says, I'm not over anything. I'm under many churches. I'm under many pastors. You see, we got it all wrong. We think this is about power and overseer and I'm over you. I was speaking to a couple of pastors in Dominican Republic recently and we're going there in November. I told you about that. And he was like, oh, we're so glad you guys are coming here and you're going to be covering us. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not covering anything. We're not covering anybody. What do you think I am, a blanket? An umbrella? I am not covering anybody. We're coming there, brother, to work with you. To partner with you. We're not over you. We're not interested in being over anything. And yet, some people, they like these words, bishop. 
Sounds scary, right? Bishop, overseer. Whoa. But sometimes Paul, we just read one case. Paul uses three of these terms in one sentence. I just read one of them. In Acts 20, verse 17, it says, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. It's one Greek word. Then we read verse 28, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And be shepherds, be pastors. So there you have it. Elders, overseers, bishops, and shepherds. All in one place. All referring to the same people. We've made a big deal out of this when really it's quite simple. The local church that you see in the book of Acts and growing even beyond that in the New Testament, it had a body of elders, respected, seasoned men of God that had a testimony, they could teach the Word of God, they had proven that they loved the church, and they together were guiding the church and caring for the church. And then another layer beneath those elders were the deacons. Oh, People get really puffed up when they have a name badge. Uh, Deacon Norman. Here comes Deacon Norman. Look out, man. The deacon is here. You know what a deacon is? We just read about them. They're table waiters. (laughs) So when you go to the restaurant, doesn't your table server have their little name badge on there? Big deal. I'm here to serve you. That's all they are. They've proven that they have a gift and a heart to serve the church. And so, as this church began to come together by the Holy Spirit, it started to take on some form and some structure. And I believe in coming weeks and months, as we seek the Holy Spirit, God is going to begin to put some of these things in place here. We need men. We need some men to rise up. Bible says if anybody desires the office of an elder or a bishop, it's a good thing. But read the qualifications. You've got to be faithful. You've got to be serious about the Lord. But, you know, like the Marines say, I'm looking for a few good men in these coming months. We're looking for some men and some women, but we're looking for everybody to step forward now and say, sign me up. I want to work for the Lord. I want to use my gifts. I want to use my talents. I want to get filled with the Holy Spirit so I can be a part of His church. Let's stand. He's going to build His church with me, without me. He's going to build His church with you, Without me. But the beautiful thing is, He's letting us sign up. He's letting us volunteer. God, I want to be a part of this thing. Sign me up. Use me. I surrender. We're going to do it His way. His church. His way. Father, in the name of Jesus, we've seen enough of man's way. We've seen enough of the messes we can make with our own pride and foolishness and selfish ambition and carnality. God, we want it Your way. Lord, I am earnestly seeking You in these days for You to build Your church Your way. Raise up apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Raise up elders and deacons in this church. Raise up responsible men and women with a burden for souls, with a burden for the kingdom of God. Lord, take away our dullness, our slothfulness, our selfishness, our indifference, our love for the world. We love the things of the world more than the things of God. Stir us up. Light a fire under us. Fill us with the Holy Spirit and power so that we can do what you're calling us to do. Time is short, Lord. Time is very short. And as we heard this morning, life can be very, very brief and very, very short. We're here today, gone tomorrow. 
We think we have a lifetime, but we don't. We have today. We have today. So today, Lord, if we're hearing Your voice, let us get stirred up. Help us to surrender. Help us to be like Isaiah. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Use me. Here I am. I surrender to the purpose and the plan of God. Lord, let us not go through life just gathering some toys, storing away some silver or gold in the bank to rot and rust. But Lord, let us give ourselves for that which lasts, that which is eternal, for Your kingdom, for Your glory, for this thing called the church that You love so much we learn later on You gave Yourself for the church that You might wash her in the water of Your Word. You might remove every spot, every wrinkle, every blemish. That she might be like a holy bride ready for Your soon return. Ready for the marriage of all marriages. Lord, stir us up and prepare us. We give ourselves to You now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.